Welcome to the Healing Our Sight podcast, where we discuss vision issues and healing strategies from the patient perspective. The goal of this podcast is to create an awareness of the diverse types of vision issues people experience, to highlight the types of help available, and to open a dialogue between patients to show we're not alone in our vision struggles. In this episode, Robin and Jillian Benoit share their story, as well as an update on what has transpired in the 10 years since Jillian's story was published. You'll hear about some of the ways Jillian coped with, as well as hid, her amblyopia, some things to watch for that reveal vision issues exist, and why Robin and Jillian are such passionate supporters of the Infant C program. Jillian also tells how she successfully diagnosed a boy in her class when she was only 12. I'll link their website and the other websites we mention in the notes for this episode. To comment, head over and like the new Healing Our Sight Facebook page and leave me a message. Here's our episode. Welcome to our podcast today. Today on our podcast, I'm speaking with Robin and Jillian Benoit. I met Robin and Jillian at a presentation about vision therapy in Utah in early 2012. They had been doing presentations around the country and working on their second book, which is entitled Dear Jillian, Vision Therapy Changed My Life Too. At that time, I was in therapy along with two of my children, and my vision therapy doctor, Jared Davies, invited me to attend their presentation. Today, they have graciously agreed to share their experiences along with an update of their life since then. So we'll start with some background on Robin. After learning a BS degree in journalism in 1985 from Oklahoma State University, Robin began her career in public relations and marketing, working in nonprofit, advertising agency, and corporate settings. She wrote Jillian's story in 2010 with the goal of helping even one family. Jillian's story, along with Dear Jillian, Vision Therapy Changed My Life Too, which she co-wrote with her daughter Jillian, have far exceeded her hopes. Dear Jillian was published in 2014. Copies of both books are used in curriculum at several optometry colleges and found in many doctor's offices around the world. They have also been translated into Spanish and Korean, and excerpts of the books are published in German, French, Dutch, Greek, and Italian. After the publication of the books, Robin worked for several years for the Optometric Extension Program Foundation. That was actually one of those presentations was the one I was at, correct? Yes. Yes. And as a freelance writer for Vivid Vision, a company that makes virtual reality games for vision therapy, she has interviewed and written vision therapy success stories for well over 100 individuals. Jillian is now 21 years old and entering her senior year at Oklahoma State University. She's majoring in human sciences, child and family services, with the goal of going to optometry school. She worked at the optometry offices of Dr. Carol Ann Roach in Oklahoma City last summer, where she did vision therapy with patients and assisted with eye exams. She has shadowed numerous optometrists in her teenage years. Robin and Jillian also support the American Optometric Association's Infant C program, which provides free eye exams for babies ages 6 through 24 months. They have made several presentations on their behalf around the country. So, Robin, for those who are not familiar with the story that you chronicle in in the book, Jillian's Story, can you provide a little background about your experience as a mom watching your child struggle? 
Sure. It's very interesting that I didn't realize at the time when Jillian was, say, a preschooler, that she was really struggling. Uh, Now I know, looking back on it, that there were a lot of things that I should have caught that I didn't. For example, it didn't occur to me that not being able to tie her shoes or not being able to cut well with scissors or having no interest in coloring or certain balance issues that she had or anything like that was a sign of a vision problem. So Jillian had gone through four vision screenings, even at the young age of five in preschool and at her pediatrician's office. And no one had ever mentioned that Jillian had a vision problem. And then I got a call one day from the preschool saying that Jillian had not done very well at school, that she'd gotten very upset about having a patch put on her eye to pretend to be a pirate. And they said, quite frankly, Mrs. Benoit, I don't think she can see out of her eye at all, just the way that she acted. And I found that really hard to believe, but it was true. And so despite all the vision screenings, no one ever caught the fact that Jillian could not see out of one of her eyes, which is amblyopia. And uh, we went through a three-year process with an ophthalmologist to help correct her problem. And the treatment was patching, where they put a patch over the strong eye to force the weak one to work. And um, three years later, we discovered as she was entering fourth grade, that she had double vision and still a world of problems. And so that's kind of where I was when I discovered vision therapy. And it was just such a a godsend and such a a find for us, something that we really needed for her. And I wrote the book because I had searched so long and so hard for an answer for her that I couldn't find. And also because the screenings failed and the patching through the ophthalmologist failed. And I just wanted to help other families not go through that same process. So that's really where that book came from. Right. And Jillian, you share your thoughts in the book as well, right? Yes. And it's been 10 years since that book was published. What is the most impactful thought that you shared in the book? Well, first of all, I think it's crazy. It's been 10 years. Just hearing that, like, my brain was just like, what? <laughs> but it's true, and I'm old. <laughs> says, oh, I'm old, says the 21-year-old. Right. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I think there's two things. Is like The first thing is just sharing what I went through in a way that not only people who didn't have medical degrees could understand, but also kids could understand. And like what I've been through is, I don't want to say normal, because it's not the right word, but Uncom- not, uncommon. Un- not uncommon. Right. Like I couldn't tie my shoelaces. I My balance was terrible. I couldn't really catch a ball if it was thrown at me. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things. And other people could read that and be like, hey, my kid does that. Or, hey, I do that. Exactly. Back to the screenings, I thought they were a game. Because at the end, I would get a lollipop and I would get to go play on the playground. So I just memorized what the kids in front of me said because I wanted to win and I wanted candy. Okay. I was going to ask how you managed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> People didn't know that you weren't seeing out of that eye. Yeah. She called it the lollipop game. When uh-huh. I asked her about it, when I asked her about vision screenings when she was little, 
um, when we were doing the book, she said, are you talking about the lollipop game <laughs> where you stand on the piece of tape and you say it, you read it once and you say it back from memory. And that's when we kind of knew again, that she couldn't see out of the one eye that they were testing. Did they yeah. always test the good eye first or did they let you choose? Mm -hmm. Ironically, it just so happened. It was always the good eye first that she read from yes. that she ran from. My okay. right eye is my bad eye and you naturally read left to right. So they just did my left eye first. And even then, there, I was even though I was a B, there were usually a couple of kids with A last names in front of me, so I could kind of get a hint of what the answer was from listening to them, and then I would read it back and be like, okay, make sure it's in. Going to get the cherry-flavored one today. <laughs> it's all for the lollipop. Um, so, yeah, that's how that happened. Oh, that's amazing. I don't think everybody could have memorized it and passed it like you did, Jillian. <laughs> that's impressive. Never underestimate the things I would do for sugar. <laughs> I mean, if it was chocolate, I would have done even better. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were going through your therapy, what was your favorite activity? Oh, it's hard. I liked the balance theme just because I'd like to imagine I was like on a rope above like a giant precipice or something like an adventurer would be. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked the vectogram once my brain could actually comprehend it, um, with the whole sheep moment, um, in the book where I finally clicked. And there was a rotator where I had to put these golf tees into pegs and that kind of played into my competitive side. So I really enjoyed that one as well. Okay. And what was your least favorite thing? Um, it was called the TBI. I wrote down what that stood for because I'm not very good with acronyms. <laughs> okay, so it's the Translid Binocular Interactor. Uh -huh. And basically, it's this TV remote looking thing. And you set like the nose piece on your nose. And there's these two lights that'll sit against your eyelids once you close your eyes. And you turn it on and it flashes these kind of strobe lights. And it was to keep my brain from suppressing my bad eye. Um, and I hated it because it gave me terrible headaches every time. The first time I did it, I actually almost threw up and my vision therapist just grabbed the nearest trash can, just kind of scooted it over by me and was like, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You actually did have an episode when you lost it, right? <laughs> like it did make you that sick. One time. Did it? Yeah. I don't remember. That, I don't remember. I remember if I did drop book. because of it, I don't remember. <laughs> My that, brain probably was memory. like, I forget that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't blame you for that at all. How, how was the home practice? Um, on one hand, it was fun because I could do it with my family and be like, well, look at this. And also just, I'm competitive. I like games and a lot of them were little games. But being competitive is a double-edged sword because when you're bad at, the, at home exercises at first, it's extremely frustrating. Right. And then another thing that was kind of, that could be annoying with them is they would sometimes interrupt my fun. So like there were days I'd be playing Mario Kart in the living room and mom would be like, hey, when you're done with this race, we need to do your at-home exercises. And I'd be like, I just did my regular homework. <laughs> yeah, you had that extra thing added on that you had to do. Yeah. 
that's we tried to space them out as best we could so like on weekends like we usually do them in the morning and then i'd be free the rest of the day or on weekdays it'd be like okay come home play do your homework chill out eat dinner have a little more time do vision therapy go to bed right and so that helped but every now and then i'd be like oh i don't want to do them and there (laughs) and like a couple of times we'd forget and I'd be so happy because I'd be playing. It's like, Ooh, I think mom forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, and then I'd get up in the morning. She's like, Oh, I forgot to do your exercises. And I'd be drinking my milk in the car and being like, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm so sad. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> oh, it sounds like you had a pretty good system worked out though. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Do you have any tips for parents on how you should encourage your child to do their home therapy practice? Um, I always say to celebrate many victories along the way. And even after maybe a week of vision therapy, we would try to say, okay, so Saturday or Sunday, instead of doing vision therapy, I want you to help me in the kitchen to cook something. Or we would go get popsicles or, you know, something along that line. But it was trying to celebrate achievements along the way and milestones along the way and try to make them fun. And she used to get a kick out of me trying to do it or her sister or her dad trying to do it and realizing it was hard. I remember the ball hanging. I was about, I was about to bring that up was (laughs) there was the ball on a string and it had numbers and letters on it. And as it would swing around, you'd have to say what you saw. And it it was actually really hard for everyone. And one time I, I think it was I who hit it too hard and made the chandelier rock a little bit. We were all like, ooh. <laughs> but it did not break. It was fine. <laughs> it was fine. But I, I would often try to do things with her or have her dad or her sister do stuff. And that was the other thing is it wasn't always me. And I think sometimes she had fun when somebody else in the family would do it with her too. So maybe that's a good recommendation. I like that. Yeah, that's great. How is your life different now, Jillian, because of vision therapy? I can't even imagine what my life would be like without it. That's how much it impacted me in in such a relatively young age. Mm -hmm. Like if I hadn't done vision therapy, I probably would have at least tried to drop out of high school, but mom probably would have stopped me and I would have like barely made it and it would have been like, hooray. Um, (laughs) But now I'm in college. I'm going to be a senior in the fall and I want to be an optometrist, vision therapy made me look into that career. And now I want to be an optometrist and I want to help kids like me someday. I remember reading that in the book that that was what what your goal was. So that didn't change over these ensuing years, did it? Organic chemistry tried really hard to change it. (laughs) That class was horrible. And if anyone listening to this either has taken or will have to take organic chemistry at some point in their lives, I'm so sorry. It's just the worst class and you just have to power through. And then when it's over, just go watch a movie you enjoy and those memories will just leave your brain. Okay. And it's going to be fine. <laughs> and that'll be fine. I would have dropped that class so fast if I, w- if I hadn't done vision therapy. I probably wouldn't have even wanted to take hard classes and do that without it. Right. I think I knew she was so super serious about becoming an optometrist 
when she realized if she had to take organic chemistry and organic chemistry too, and if she needed to take anatomy, she was going to power through it, whatever it took, and make the grades that she needs to make in order to get into school. She's been a dean's honor roll student. She has a 3.6 average or better. I think I, I think it's 3.6 right now. It change it changes because they round. So, so she's really tried very hard, and I think that has just proven that vision therapy set her up to succeed. I mean, yes, she's had to work very hard for what she's wanting to achieve, but it took away all the roadblocks that were impacting her abilities. And now she can achieve what she wants to, as long as she just really tries. And the other thing for my husband and I is her ability to drive safely in a car and to know that when she pulls out of the driveway and she's heading an hour and a half north to the university to school that she can see and that she has her peripheral vision and she has her depth perception and she can see and be a safe driver. I hadn't even thought of that. If I hadn't done vision therapy, I probably wouldn't be able to drive and that's terrible because I love driving. Like, yeah. I, I sing the entire time <laughs> and it's one of my favorite things to do. And it's kind of like my therapy almost because I just get to blast music really loud and it's just like, yay, adventure. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that my driving was such a, uh, topic of conversation until recently when my kids said, oh yeah, mom, remember how you used to run into everything? And I'm like, no, I didn't. I think there were maybe close calls or something, but uh, maybe a little, you know, the neighbor's car that was behind where I was pulling out, that kind of thing that the kids remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's definitely driving is an issue <laughs> in mm-hmm. with vision therapy. You also, when you wrote your follow-up book, interviewed a bunch more people and told their stories, right? There's 22 more stories in Dear Jillian, Vision Therapy Changed My Life Too, right? What's been the, the most impactful thing about writing that book as a follow-up to your story? You know, really, that book was a result of a lot of emails that Jillian was getting, obviously, however negative ones were coming at her too. And I was getting very protective of her because she was getting emails from people saying things pretty harsh, you know, like you're a kid, your mom's an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Vision therapy doesn't work. You know, you shouldn't be putting this information out there. I mean, I couldn't believe the things that were being said to her. And really this came as a result because Jillian said, This man wants to know where is our research data proving that vision therapy works? Well, I'm the data and every single success story is the data and we need to tell more stories. So here I have this 12 year old basically telling me we're going to write another book and she wanted to be a lot more involved in it. And at 12, I felt like she could. And so we started going through and we wanted to be a wide variety of treatment reasons that people had sought out vision therapy, whether it was stroke or traumatic brain injury or whatever the reason might have been, not just amblyopia or strabismus, but a wide range and also different ages, men, women, boys and girls. I mean, we really wanted to show that she wasn't a fluke 
that she wasn't one in a million, that vision therapy is changing the lives of many people. And this is the data. This is what shows these individual stories. So we pulled it together from people that we had met, talked to people that had written to Jillian or to me, and they were all immediately on board with the idea of sharing their story in a compilation carrying on to Jillian's story. So the result was, I think, really impactful because it's not one example of how vision therapy changed one life. It is an example of how it changed a variety of people's lives. And I could probably write Dear Jillian a hundred times over. I mean, that's how many success stories I have come into contact with. And it was an honor, truly, to be able to take those stories and write that book. So I think it helps. I've had so many people write and say, I liked Jillian's story a lot, but I am a 63-year-old woman who had a stroke. And to find something that I could specifically engage with and relate to um, is what made the difference for me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That's awesome. And there's a lot of commentary from Jillian in there too, right? Yes. I have, I write either the intro or the conclusion, depending on the chapter for every single one. Mm-hmm. And, had and you- I, loved it. I loved, she would come home from school and she would say, what do I need to write today? And I'd say, well, I wrote the, this story. I would write basically what happened to the person. Mm-hmm. And like she said, she would write either the intro beginning part. Usually it was the conclusion. And she always wanted to leave them a personal message. Um, at the end of every one. And she would literally walk in, toss her backpack down and sit straight at the computer. And I just knew it was really important to her that we, we do this second book. I'm very proud of it. And I'm very proud of her, you know, for what she did. And also I must be honest, we can get away with letting a 12 year old say things (laughs) that maybe I shouldn't have said, but I was secretly thinking, um, (laughs) So yeah. I mean, there are many times in Dear Jillian where she just flat out calls it like it is. Right. And I was uncomfortable doing that myself, but I certainly allowed her to do it. I'm still like that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was it was great fun. We definitely felt like a team. We still do um, mm-hmm. that we approached this together. It was great, really. That's awesome. Are are you continuing to get those kinds of emails and more messages from those particular people even? Um, you know, it's a lot, lot less than it used to be. Um, I, Jillian, for I would say the, the last few years, um, has seen less of it. I think at first people thought that she was still 10 years old. Because they just read the book maybe a couple of years ago. They didn't realize maybe she was 19 years old. And a few of my favorite things were like when young children would write to Jillian. And I assume that mothers or dads were doing the typing. But it was so charming. And one time a little girl asked if Jillian would like to go trick-or-treating with her. Um, (laughs) Or did she? Do you remember? I think it it was trick-or-treating. And I was like, I would love to, but I live in Oklahoma and you live in Michigan. I don't know how this would work out. 
Also, also, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'm 16. (laughs) So, and I think sometimes even parents are like, oh, yes, it was written a few years ago. And we kind of get that. It has slowed down from time to time. I get more emails than Jillian does from uh, adult patients and parents, Mm -hmm. um, just mostly saying how much the stories gave them hope and gave them and the encouragement to give this a try and that they were really grateful for us putting our family story out there so that they felt like they had a recommendation, if you will, from a friend. So that was the whole goal is to see if we could even just help one family and we did. So that that's amazing. Yes. Many, many families. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. So you have a website entitled JillianStory.com, right? And yes. a Facebook page of, with the same name? Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's the best way for people to actually go and buy your books? Um, because it's been so many years, the best way to buy these books is just at our website, JillianStory.com. They have been in rotation in before, but I think that they're starting to um, disappear in a lot of stores and online. You can still find them, but the best way is to just to go about JillianStory.com. The Optometric Extension Program Foundation sells them as well, and that email or that website is oepf.org. And Cornell Corporation sells them too. But JillianStory.com will get you there and help you to buy a book or two. Okay. I noticed that you mentioned those, those books are used in op- for optometry school and, and doctor's offices often have them. So it feels like if someone doesn't already know about vision therapy, that they might have a hard time knowing that this kind of option exists. Would that still be true? I think it is still true. I think it's less true than it was 10 years ago. I think that there are still many optometrists themselves that just don't even really offer vision therapy in their practices, that it is still more of a a specialty that you find. And that's why we were hoping that the word would get out, that people would share this story. Every time, let me rephrase this, a family member or a friend goes to their optometrist, no matter where it is in the country, I get a text photo of the book if they find it, because they want me to know my optometrist has your books and (laughs) I, they must be great, you know, and that kind of thing, which I think is, is awesome and kind of fun. Remind, this remind me of um, a work story. I worked at an optometrist's office last summer, and I actually did vision therapy with kids, among other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and one day I was in the back doing paperwork, and the doctor comes in and she's like, Jillian, can you come in the exam room for a second? I found your clone. <laughs> and it was um, a 12-year-old girl with amblyopia, and she was like, and I walk in, she's like, okay, this is Jillian who I was telling you about. And I was just like, Hey, <laughs> it was a really like it was cool, but it was also very weird because it's never happened before. Where it's like, oh, I'm telling you about this story, and I'm going to lend you this book I have in my office. And the girl it's about 
works for me and she's right there. Right. Right. That's so, but I, I do think that it is still, unfortunately, not common knowledge for people to know about vision therapy. And so that's why we've tried all these years to share Jillian's story and the other stories in Dear Jillian so that hopefully people will learn and understand. I do think that there's been quite a bit of improvement with physical therapists and occupational therapists knowing and understanding vision therapy. We sell a lot of books to them as well. And especially I think because of Jillian's balance and the whole vestibular issue of Jillian's correction through vision therapy is something that is right down their alley as well. So vision is strongly connected to the other senses. So if your vision is askew, the odds of the rest of you being in a funk, so to speak, is pretty high. So it makes sense that they're interested in that because someone could be going to occupational therapy for balance and that balance issue could stem from their vision. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they're starting to realize that more now. Yes. Yes. That's great. So I kind of talked about how things have changed a little bit since the, you know, 10 years that have gone by since you wrote the story. How would you like things to have changed? What, what, What do you wish would have happened so far? I think the first thing is I wish um, we had found vision therapy when I was younger. I mean, 10 is still really young, but kind of old for a kid. Um, so I wish we found it when I was teeny tiny and I wouldn't have had to struggle for, for so long because I, I was homeschooled for three years when I was very young because I wasn't allowed to go to first grade with an eye patch, oh. um, which it's probably the weirdest rule I've ever heard out of a private school. And when my patching through the ophthalmologist was done, I decided to go to what I called normal people school, <laughs> um, which was fourth grade. And it was really hard. And that's kind of when we realized we're not done with this Jillian's vision thing. Right. I think that's why we speak on behalf of the AOA's infancy program, because that is my biggest if only in life. If only that that program had existed when Jillian was a baby. And if only we had known when she was young that she had refractive amblyopia, she could have been treated differently. If only... We could have gotten her into the right hands and not gone the wrong direction for her treatment. It would have saved us a lot of heartache. And so I think that's what I wish were different is that we could go back in time and have somebody tell me when she was between six and 12 months old, that there's something we need to be watching here and not be so completely shocked that my daughter was legally blind in one eye at the age of five. I mean, that just came out of left field for me. Right. Yeah, my daughter wasn't diagnosed until she was 10 either. And I specifically asked the doctor when I took her to the optometrist if she was okay. Because she had the same exact symptoms I had had. And he told Mm -hmm. me she was fine. He said, she has a little tracking issue, but she's fine. And I found out later that was more than a little bit of an issue. Mm-hmm. She she accommodated really, really well. So she was still 
getting good grades and looking like everything was fine. <laughs> it really wasn't. I, know, I, I wonder a lot of the times if Jillian had not been put in a patch on Pirate Day at preschool, when we would have discovered this issue because mm -hmm. she is the queen of compensating. I mean, she could fool anybody like with those screenings, but mm -hmm. looking back, I remember she used to hold a cup like she was a princess. I mean, she would hold her cup with her little pinkies extended out. And I just thought she was so dainty and charming. And really what that was is she was trying to find out where the glass was with her pinky because she saw two. Oh. She had double vision. And the pinky could touch the real glass, but not to, but not the phantom one. And it's bad manners. And you will get called out on your bad manners if you're like, where's my cup? And also you might knock it down, which is worse. So <laughs> you just kind of feel around and when you find it, oh, there you go. Now I can pick up my drink. But I think that these were, you know, even unknowingly to her, a lot of times she compensated for things that none of us caught. Mm -hmm. There were things like you would ask me about, like, why did you do that? And then I'd think back on it and be like, oh, it's because of the vision thing. Because mm -hmm. it was such like a quick thing. It's like, um, there's two glasses. How do I use your pinky? Figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that those are some things, you know, that. I mean, it goes back to the screenings. It's like, oh, no. It's like, how are we going to do this? We need to get the lollipop. Memorize what the kid in front of you said. <laughs> and then I get the lollipop and everything was fine. Right. Oh, wow. Well, not fine in general, but fine for a small child who really wanted candy. <laughs> that, that worked really well for you. It really did. So are, are you doing any presentations these days? Because the, you said you worked for them for a while and now you're not doing that anymore. Um, right. I, I had worked for the Optometric Extension Program Foundation for three years. And really, I think part of it was working from a home office and the headquarters being in Baltimore just felt very isolating. And I was doing a lot of writing for them. And I just realized how much I wanted to do more of that and decided to just really go back to doing more freelance writing. And I still write quite a lot. I've done a, written a lot of blogs about success stories for Vivid Vision uh, regarding people who are using their virtual reality games to move their vision therapy process along quicker. And they're finding a lot of success with that. And so I enjoy interviewing people and sharing their stories and writing them. So I went back and just decided to focus on that. I, I enjoy it. I really do. Another thing is I'm in college. And so it's a lot harder to grab me um, <laughs> to speak because when I was oh, in yeah. high school and even middle school, like the first one of these I did was when I was 11 in Las Vegas, which this is a random aside, but I had more fun in Las Vegas when I was 11 than when I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, so true. true. I, don't, I don't even want to go back to Vegas, really. Um, <laughs> but then it was easy to be like, okay, I can pull her out of school on a random Friday where she's not doing anything this weekend. Whereas now it's like, it's, I have to study this weekend or I have 
a mandatory sorority function this weekend that I cannot miss or I will have to pay money. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's been hard to schedule anything that, in which Jillian is involved. Mm-hmm. And I've done a few things. I, I go and do some presentations, but it's a lot less these days than it used to be. I guess I was curious because you said you had written a, about a hundred different stories. So those were for Vivid Vision then, most of them? Um, and for the OEP Foundation. And when I worked for the OEP Foundation, we did a really great project. It was an annual calendar that went to all of their member optometrists around the world. And each month was a different success story. Okay. And you would not believe how many people would go to their optometrist and see this calendar like laying on the coffee table and thumb through it and say they were there to take their child for their annual appointment, that they read the story about the person who'd had a car accident and was struggling with traumatic brain injury. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is my other family member. And I didn't know optometrists could address this and help in these ways. And so that was at least 48 stories with four years worth of calendars. And then with the ones that I've written and I've helped people write their stories and just do some editing on their stories for those that want to do their own blogs and maybe their own books, which I think is great. So that's actually something that I was going to ask you about because I've been wanting to share my own story in a more impactful way. And I think there's probably people listening who also have a story to tell. Do you have advice for us concerning that? I would say, I I think my advice is to do, to do that, to do your story, to share it in a way that works for you and that is comfortable for you. I didn't set out to write a book. I thought I might do a blog and I just wanted other families to not go through the same struggles. And I thought I might just throw this up on a blog. Blogs were kind of new back 2010, 2009. And I sat down one night and I just started writing content for it. And at 2.30 in the morning, I looked up and realized I thought I had a book going. And (laughs) You know, I have a degree in journalism. Writing has always been something that I love to do. And, but I didn't know how to get a book published. I had no idea how you did that. And I reached out to a friend from when I was a child. We lived across the street from each other. And he had written a book about mountain climbing. And I thought, well, I'm just going to ask him. And it was one of those examples where you dial the phone, but then you don't hit send because you just feel a little awkward and you don't know you really want to make that call. But I finally did. And he said, look, don't send it to New York City. Don't do a manuscript like that. He said, let me refer you to a publisher that I know in Dallas that I think might be interested and I'll make the introduction and you take it from there. And so he did, he made that introduction to Brown books and I got to talk to Millie Brown and we talked about her story, about Jillian's story, Jillian's life and what I was hoping to accomplish. And she said, give me three weeks to read it and I'll let you know. And she called me three days later and said, let's do a deal. So it came about very unexpectedly. I would say, Network. I think networking works. I think 
reach out to people. If you're listening to me right now, reach out to me and let me see if I can help make an introduction to somebody or help in some way, whether it's to have your blog shared on a bigger stage, whether it's to get a speaking opportunity. I think that there are things that people can do, such as writing a book, but there are other things as well. So the, the, you mentioned that you were writing a blog. What, where is your blog? I never, I never published it. I just oh. thought about doing it. Yeah, I started kind of building it and um, trying to make a website and trying to build all this up. And I actually uh, decided not to go that way. So I never even posted it up. So the website that you have, basically, it, it just has your, your books on it and some ways to contact you. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And I say that, but several years ago, really, now that I'm thinking about it, after I met you in Utah, I did write about that night. And I put that up through WordPress, I think. And I did do, now that you're reminding me, I did write a little bit about that. Because that was one of those nights where I felt compelled to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And um, you're right. I had forgotten, but I did put that out there. I just remember that night specifically, there was a woman who was sitting on the front row a little bit to my left as I was speaking, as Jillian and I were speaking, and she was crying. And literally, she cried the entire time. And as soon as it was over, I beelined straight to her because, you know, I knew her in essence, that I knew why she was there. And I knew she had just found the answer she'd been searching for. I recognized her because she was me at a different point in time. And I went over and I talked to her and her son was almost exactly like Jillian's situation. And they had never heard of vision therapy before. And it was just Really, she had seen a flyer about it or something and decided just to take a chance and stop by and see what this might be about. I stayed in touch with her for a short time and they had taken him to an optometrist and he was going to start vision therapy. And then, uh, unfortunately, I lost track of her after that. But I still really remember that night very clearly. That's an amazing story. That, that's the kind of thing that we want to see happen on a much larger basis, I think, at this point. I would love it if your book was in every library in the country and people could go on their, on their library site and they could search for help for vision issues and it would come up and it would say vision therapy and people would just know, oh, there is this thing that I've never heard of that I can explore. Absolutely. I, there for a few years, every time you put vision therapy into a Google search engine, Jillian's story came up. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not really the case anymore because there has been so much more written about it. Not necessarily books, although there are some books, but there's so much more information now than there used to be that you don't automatically land on Jillian's story. And um, we have done our best to make sure that these books are in every optometry college around the country, but just your basic 
town library, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Well, if they don't know to type in vision therapy, that's that's the part that that gets me, you know, because if you just type in I'm having vision issues, you may or may not find the answer. That's true. I think you have to do an extensive search. Mm -hmm. I think that you can't just do, you know, vision problems and see what you get. I think you need to just continue to research and continue to push those those different words out into those search engines that -hmm. you run across and see what you can find. Because I didn't, I didn't, when I first went looking for vision therapy, I didn't type vision therapy into it. I think I put something along the lines of struggling student vision problem or something along that line. And I think at the time we were living in Jacksonville, Florida, and I probably put Jacksonville, Florida in the bar. And that's when I landed upon the website of covd.org. And that is the College of Optometrists and Vision Development. And that's what sent me um, to Dr. Horning. And eventually, I think if people continue to search, they will find the help they need. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, for myself, I had been typing in vision improvement, I think, because I was having issues with my eyesight not being what I wanted it to be. And in one of those cases, I'm not sure if I typed something different in or if magically CLV came up, CLVD came up anyway, but somehow I, I found that solution as well. Hopefully what we're sharing today is going to pique some more interest and answer some questions for some people. And I'm just really happy that we've been able to have this conversation today. Can you think of anything else that you want to share as a last little story? Um, I always really love it when Jillian wraps up our speeches, when we've gone around the country, especially in optometry schools. The very last thing that she has to share with them is always pretty meaningful for me. So can you tell them? Yeah, let me me find it in the book because I'm a lot more well-spoken on paper than I am in person. (laughs) I'm sure everyone listening has figured that out. Okay, here it is. Um, So I usually, this is usually addressed to optometry students, but it's, you may not offer vision therapy in your own practice when you graduate, but please know what it is and what it can do because you hold the key to changing someone's life in your hand. Very nice. And I think that that, that's why we really love talking to students in optometry schools because they're the next generation of doctors. And if they know what vision therapy is, even if they aren't going to offer that specifically, they'll know to refer for it. And it is super life-changing, not just for the person involved, as you can probably attest to this. It's life-changing for those around you as well. Jillian's vision therapy changed my life just as much as it changed hers. And so it's very important to us that optometry students graduate knowing what it is. I want everyone to know what it is. <laughs> but particularly when you know that people are going to go to the doctor most likely for, for those answers, then yeah, that's, that's definitely such an important piece of the, the picture. 
Well, and I would say also anyone listening to this, make sure your optometrist has Jillian's story and dear Jillian on their coffee table or available to their patients. And if you don't see it there, you might mention it to them and say, hey, you know, this might really help a lot of your patients. And we offer discounts for optometrists to buy the books through JillianStory.com. And I'll even sign them if you ask me to. (laughs) (laughs) One time she signed. I signed over a hundred. I think it was a hundred. I think it was a hundred. One day it was, they were all over the living room and it was just like, pick up, sign, put it in the stack, pick up, sign. And I don't know, it made this, like whatever part of your brain is like super satisfied by organization and assembly lines, just really happy. So I'm like singing little songs. <laughs> like the only was, thing, like yeah. my hand hurt by the end of it, but everything else about that experience was amazing. <laughs> And this was for an optometrist in Canada who um, wanted to give the books in her welcome packet to anyone that was coming in um, Mm -hmm. so that they could learn more about how life-changing optometry is as a whole. And um, so, yeah, Jillian signed every single one of those books. And we have signed, especially her, um, a lot of them over the years. I signed some, I think it was last semester was you brought some and we were yeah. in a restaurant and I'm just like, I'll sign these real quick. <laughs> so, so I would say, you know, let's try to keep getting the word out because there are people whose lives need to be changed for the better. I, I know of a woman who was in her fifties before she realized that she could change things about herself, her vision that were preventing her from being able to read. And I, I'm an avid reader and I just can't imagine not being able to enjoy books and that just shouldn't be anymore. We shouldn't be able to get to 50 and still not be able to do these things. There's an answer and we just got to make sure people know that that this is the answer. People need to know what signs to look for for vision problems because most people, especially kids, aren't going to assume there's something wrong with their vision. They're going to think that how they see the world around them is the same as everyone else's because they don't know any different. Exactly. Um, I had no depth perception. I remember this was shortly after vision therapy helped me acquire depth perception we were at the beach because we lived in Florida at the time and there was a hole in the ground and before vision therapy the way I could determine if it was a hole was that it was a darker color of sand mm-hmm. and while we were there I was just like it goes down like it actually has depth and I can actually see it instead of just like being able to interpret that from oh the sand is a darker color this means it's a hole and I will fall in it Mm -hmm. and so it's well I can actually see the whole way (laughs) exactly I love how she figured out about peripheral vision um she went she went to um, zoo camp camp. I went to zoo camp more than once because my my sister and I loved zoo camp so much um and there was one day where they did a unit about owls and the zookeeper brought an owl and we could pet it it was really fun we were learning about owls and one thing about owls that they discussed was that owls don't have peripheral vision, which is why they move their heads so much. And my cartoons have them turn their heads 
360 around was that's how they looked. And I was just like, oh, that's me. I'm an owl. She did. She got in the car and she goes, I am an owl. And I said, how are you owl? And she said, because I have to turn my head to see. And I thought, you know, these are great examples. I've had people say, what kind of things do I look for? And I had one child that loved anything on the back of a paper menu in a restaurant, you know, the, the search games and the coloring and all that loved it. And Jillian hated it. I could do the coloring and sometimes the mazes, the the one I really, really could not stand was word search. Mm -hmm. I still don't really like them just because that the, all those bad word search memories are ingrained into my head. So I just don't like them. But like my dad and my sister would be like, and I'd be over here like, there's nothing. <laughs> I just, I thought, I thought she was impatient, you know, that she would sit in a rest restaurant and she wasn't patient and here, try to entertain yourself. Here's a book. Here's this, here's that. And now I know without a doubt, children that reject those things do not see them correctly. Children that have a hard time sitting still for long periods of time in their lessons may not have ADHD or ADD. They may have convergence insufficiency, which creates difficulty in staying in a tracking situation for long enough. And headaches are a really big deal. I mean, Jillian herself, we wrote in the book, often escape to the restroom because of headaches during school. And I think that these are things that parents need to be really aware of and watched for because your child is trying to tell you, or if you're an adult, your own body is trying to tell you things and you're just not recognizing that as a sign. Yeah. Yeah. That was true for my son. He had convergence insufficiency mm-hmm. and just, he just didn't do his work. Mm-hmm. And his, he could, his teachers knew he could do it. And so they thought he was lazy, but mm-hmm. he really could not focus on it for long enough to get it done. When Jillian was younger, I remember specifically like middle school age, seventh grade. I will never forget this. <laughs> I diagnosed a kid in my math class with convergence insufficiency. And I told my teacher and my math teacher told that kid's parents and they took the, and they took that kid to I think the same optometrist that I went to at the time. And I was right. <laughs> because we had to, because I had to work with him on like a group assignment. And I was like, he has conversions of sufficiency because he was able to do math in his head really fast. Cause I was trying to figure out the problem and he'd be like, it's eight. <laughs> and then I would be in charge of actually writing that part down. Yeah. And there were a few other things that that she noticed, but I remember specifically he called me and he said, hey, today at school, Jillian told me that she felt that one of her classmates had a vision problem. And I said, what's going on with it? And he described some things that Jillian had pointed out and that he'd kind of noticed. And he said, do you think I should listen to her? And I said, you absolutely should listen to her. (laughs) And it's just, I feel like, we need to be able to share these stories and we need teachers to be able to say, you know, this child may be a seventh grader, but she knows what she's talking about. You know, diagnosing, no, not for, for sure, but she recognized and witnessed examples and symptoms that she thought, you know, might could help. And 
he did. He went to vision therapy and 15, no, not even 15 months, like nine or 12 months later, yeah. much, much, much better. So that's, um, I remember he ended up like, I think his family moved or something because he went to, because eighth grade, we had the big, all of the town, like the whole town middle school, like graduation thing. Cause there were four middle schools um, in the town that I lived and he ended up moving to one of the other ones. And I remember he won a medal for something. And my, I think it was for math cause my old math teacher actually gave it to him and he hugged him. And I'm like, I contributed to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Great. I'm not even sure how to stop talking about all of the fun stories that we have, but maybe we can do an, a follow-up sometime. And we can oh, sure. other different ideas on things that we can do uh, as we're working towards gaining our best vision. And maybe another follow-up, you know, when Jillian's further along in her optometry career, even. <laughs> People ask if we're ever, ever going to write a third book. And I said, someday, maybe Dr. Jillian from my own perspective. <laughs> there you like go. That. And I said, we'll, we'll see if that happens down the line. But, you know, I think, Denise, it would be wonderful if I could help refer you to people who can share their stories with your audience. And uh, I'm happy to do that. Awesome. I will look forward to that. And we'll go ahead and, and end today's episode. And just I appreciate your time so much and all of the things you've shared with us today. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Our Sight. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, add a review, and share it on your favorite social media. You can also ask questions or suggest a guest by visiting my Facebook page, Healing Our Sight, and more information is found on my website, HealingMySight.com. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.